Abolition. 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 Would you mind defining, well, because it's come up a couple times, but I just want to make sure we're on the same page. So, I mean, woke is sort of the idea that um, I – this is going to be one of those moments that goes viral. I mean, woke is something that's very hard to define, and we've spent an entire chapter defining it. It is sort of the understanding that we need to totally reimagine and redo society in order to create hierarchies of oppression. Um, Sorry, I... It's hard to explain in a 15-second soundbite. Yeah, take look, your it's time. People moving out, people moving in. Why? Because of the color of the skin. Run, 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 but you should ain't high.
That was followed by Ball of Confusion from The Temptations, a bank robber remix. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with a specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, 5 Mountain, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org and on all major podcast platforms. My name is Max Parthas. Please send some healing vibes and prayers out for my co-host, Yusuf Hassan. He is very sick and won't be joining us tonight. Last week, we aired part two of our conversation with New York abolitionists from 13th Forward, featuring formerly incarcerated activist and former Black Panther Party member, Jillian Montekin. This week, we explained the four competing groups attempting to dominate the U.S. justice system narrative. What groups? What narratives? What's the difference? What do they have in common? Problem? How? Using music, poetry, and dialogue, we'll try and discuss all of that and more. And as always, we'll also bring the words of our abolitionist ancestors back to life for a new generation in our Bridging the Gap segment. So last week was crazy. (laughs) Trump was indicted. Uh, A woman killed six people, including three children, in a Tennessee Christian school. Extreme weather continued to demolish entire towns in the South. And we found out that Joanne Segovia, the executive director of the San Jose Police Officers Association in California, was a big-time drug dealer. (laughs) Yeah, crazy. And we'll talk about that later. Personally, my week has been a mixed bag. Good news and some bad. The bad news is we lost Arkansas, at least as far as getting a constitutional amendment on the ballot through legislation. Apparently, Arkansas, much like Kentucky, can only have two constitutional amendments on the ballot at a time. And somehow they decided that ending legalized slavery wasn't going to be one of those choices that the people could make. We'll regroup and rethink for Plan B on Arkansas. The good news is Louisiana submitted its anti-slavery bill, HB 211, giving them the chance to make up for last year's fiasco as the laughing stock of the nation and the only one of the Freedom Five that did not abolish slavery in their state constitutions. Here's some good news also for abolition today. Our message, our partners, supporters, and sponsors last week was our introduction to Amazon Music Podcast. And it increased our global global listener base by 10 times normal. 10 times normal. I mean, amazing. Let's hope that today's episode reaches 100 times more. That's all for the update. So let's get into the, today's lesson because it is something you really, really need to know. Today's episode is titled The Blind Men and the Elephant. The parable of the blind man of Blind Men and the Elephant is a story of a group of blind men who have never come across an elephant before and who learn and imagine what the elephant is like by touching it. Each man feels a different part of the elephant's body, but only one part, like the side or the tusk. They then make a determination of what creature they are touching based on the limited knowledge. It's a great example of what we face in organizing as slavery abolitionists. We're not the only ones who think they have the whole story and a solution to the problems. 
There are many such narratives vying for control over what we face in regards to the U.S. criminal justice system and what should be done about it. I've identified four major group categories with a very clear defining line between the two. I'll explain, but before I do, today is our first episode during Poetry Month 2023, and y'all know I'm a spoken word artist of, artist of some merit. So let's start with a poem about the blind men and the elephant by John Godfrey Sachs. It was six men of Indostan, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant, and, happening to fall against his broad and sturdy side, at once began to bawl, God bless me, but the elephant is nothing but a wall. The second feeling of the tusk cried, Oh, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp, to me tis mighty clear, the wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal, and, happening to take the squirmy trunk within his hands, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out his eager hand and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth, who chanced to touch an ear, said even the blindest man can tell what this resembles most, deny the fact who can. This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion exceedingly stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. So oft in theologic wars, the disputants, I ween, tread on utter ignorance of what each other mean, and prayed about the elephant not one of them has seen. The Blind Men and the Elephant by John Godfrey Sachs. Each thinks he knows, and each is missing critical information. And because of that, they literally make up something out of thin air to fit whatever they have imagined is true. When it comes to this crucial human rights issue, represented by subsystems and symptoms like mass incarceration, racism within the justice system, over-policing, biased policing, predatory policing, prisons for profit, unpaid prison labor, warehousing bodies for profit, criminal disenfranchisement, wrongful convictions, and a dozen other subsystems and symptoms missing parts like the history of convict leasing, the 13th Amendment, states' constitutional slavery exception clauses, and the unbroken line of legalized slavery from 1865 till now is literally costing people their lives and freedoms. So, what are the four narratives? Let's begin with number one, prison abolition. As a matter of fact, I'll let one of the original main authors of this particular narrative explain it to you herself. This is Angela Davis on Abolishing Prisons, speaking with George Strombolopoulos in 2011. It will be followed, it will be followed by the late great poet Oscar Brown Jr. performing I Apologize on Death Poetry Jam, 
You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org, here with Max Park this, this evening, and we'll be right back after this. Abolition, Abolition. Today. You know, those who want to abolish prisons, I don't think they may not have the same understanding of the issues that perhaps you would in the way you present it. So your position on it is that it is what? Well, yes, I am. Um, I identify as a prison abolitionist. Uh, and those of us who are a part of what we call the 21st century abolition movement want to see the issues that prisons attempt to address but cannot, we want to see those issues dealt with uh, differently and more effectively. I mean, for example, violence against women. Um, if we simply incarcerate every man uh, or woman who commits an act of violence against women, that doesn't necessarily mean that the problem goes away. What it means is we have ever more people behind bars. I think it's partly that we, it's the will of the people in a sense, that we live in a punishment society. People want yeah. their pound of flesh um, and oftentimes they're not worried about recidivism, they're not worried about rehabilitation. It's that particular individual who's convicted of a crime needs to pay their debt to society. We're conditioned to hear about their debt to society. And so you have a culture of people that are interested in seeing the bad person go to jail. And doesn't that also feed into the problem? Uh, most people, including myself, if I have to catch myself sometimes, when mm -hmm. someone does something um, bad to me, the first, the first instinct is to figure out how to get back at that person. Right. So, you know, how do we imagine justice in a very different context? Justice that's not based on vengeance, but justice that's made on repairing the relationships that are uh, damaged uh, uh, through uh, harm. It's a long-term plan, obviously. <laughs> very long-term plan. Very long-term plan. And you think about it, it wasn't that long ago when, you know, segregation was a reality and it wasn't that long ago when a student gets killed because he integrates a school uh, this is in a, most people who are watching their lifetime are you do you look at this like 20 40 50 60 years is this a century long of constantly changing attitudes you know i often point out that when i was young growing up in birmingham alabama and i used to sometimes get very upset that uh, as a black child I couldn't do what I wanted to do. I couldn't go to the amusement park. I couldn't go to the big library. We had to go to this uh, sort of rundown uh, black library. Mm -hmm. And you know, my mother was always very careful to tell me that this is not the way things were supposed to be. She said, this is not the way things are supposed to be and they will change. Uh, so she allowed me to develop the capacity to imagine the future in a way that is that sometimes seems very radical but it seemed radical during the era of slavery and so today of course uh, uh, slavery even though we think we've abolished it we haven't but still in terms of the way people think about it it is uh, us, it's seen as horrendous atrocious it's my great pleasure to introduce Chicago's very own Oscar Brown Jr. Apologize for being black. Oh, I am plus all I lack. Please, sir, please, ma'am, give me some slack. 
Because I apologize. I apologize for being poor, for being sick and tired. And so since I ain't slick, don't know the scope, I do apologize. I apologize because I bear resemblance most black people share. Thick lips, flat nose, and nappy hair. Yes, I apologize. I apologize for how I look, for all the lows and blows I took. On those Lord knows I'd close the book as I apologize. I apologize for all I gave, for letting you make me your slave and go into my early grave. Yes, I apologize. I apologize for being caught, for being sold, for being bought, while being told I count for naught. Yeah, I apologize. I apologize for all I've done, for all my toil out in the sun. Don't want to spoil your righteous fun, so I apologize. I apologize and curse my kind for being fooled, for being blind, for being ruled and in your bind. Yes, I apologize. I apologize and curse my fate for being slow, for being late, because I know it's me you hate. Why not apologize? I apologize and tip my hat, because you so rich and free and fat. Son of a bitch, that's where it's at, and I apologize. Abolition. Abolition. Welcome back to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org. You're here tonight with Max Parthas. Brother Yusuf Hassan is out sick. You just heard uh, Angela Davis on Abolishing Prisons with George Stropanopoulos and uh, and followed by Oscar Brown Jr.'s I Apologize. I don't know if you were taking notes or mental notes or physical notes, but I was, and I've been listening to these, these arguments over and over and over again. And some of the things that stood out for me that Angela Davis mentioned was, first of all, she's a highly intelligent person. Uh, She went up against the U.S. government and won in her argument, legal argument. So when she says, I identify as a prison abolitionist, she's very specific about what it is she's trying to accomplish. Uh, She's not haphazardly choosing uh, to identify as that. That's exactly what she means prison abolition. And prison abolition is one of the four narratives that, or one of the four groups that are vying for control over the narrative about what we face when dealing with this uh, incidents and badges of slavery within our criminal justice system. Uh, There are three others. Uh, I'll tell you the other three right now, and then I'll go back into some of the notes about what we heard. Uh, The other three include, first, prison abolition, criminal justice reform, chattel slavery as described through the 13th Amendment, and prison slavery abolitionists. These are not all the same narratives. They're not even all on the same page. They don't have the same goals or the same methods. They're not focused on the very same things. The only things, one of the only things we seem to have in common is that we're all fighting against this system in one way or another. Uh, But the end game is very important. And I also heard during Angela Davis's uh, clip there that she was specifically talking about punishment uh, and how we go about punishing people for violating crimes. And what does punishment in a new society where prisons don't exist, for example, what would that look like? Uh, She mentioned, and so did the Speaker uh, George, that people want the bad person to be punished. They want the bad person to go to jail. 
Uh, even she herself said, you know, if somebody does me wrong, I want vengeance. You know, I'm trying to figure out how do I get back at them. Well, let's hope I don't piss off Sister Angela Davis today because I don't need her trying to get no vengeance. Though. I am only trying to clear up the ear, the air and separate these narratives so that we know, first of all, they're there and we can understand what's missing from them. Um, you know, the question is, how do we address justice? says quite a bit to me. It means that you're not really thinking that the people who are being ushered into these systems, subsystems, like mass incarceration and over-incarceration and 2.4 million people being in prison, you really don't think that any of them are innocent. Like, that's not your focus at all. It's not a part of the argument that the people there might have been there only because of no other reason than the color of their skin the zip code that they live at, or the fact that <clears throat> through historical evidence, we know that there's a, uh, certain people are literally being hunted in the street, criminalized, demonized, and made to fill prisons. Uh, that's not a part of the conversation. So that's one thing some of the others right off the bat is the assumption that everybody who's in a prison or a jail is guilty of something. And we have to change these ideas about how we punish said people who are guilty of something. But I'm sorry to tell you that there's as many as 240,000 people who have been wrongfully convicted in prisons right now. As many as 250, 40,000 right now in the United States. If that were happening in any country, even at a much lower rate, let's say we found out that Zimbabwe had 50,000 people wrongfully convicted on purpose in their prison systems, the United States and their hypocrisy would be quickly denouncing Zimbabwe. They would be talking about how we might need to send soldiers over or topple the government because 50,000 people is a lot of their people to be wrongfully convicted. Well, we have more as much as five times that number in America right now. Um, and that's just counting the people who have been convicted. That's not counting through the system every single year, which equates to as many as in total with the prisons and the jails, as many as 24 million people a year being affected by this criminal justice system. To assume that all of them are guilty of something is just a damn shame. It, it makes no sense at all considering the history of the United States of America. Now, since I'm alone today, I would welcome a few phone calls if you have a question or comment. The call-in number is 515-605-9814. Remember to press 1 on your keypad so that it puts you in queue so uh, we know you have a question or a comment. As I said, prison abolition was the first one on the list. Um, I'm not here to explain exactly how prison abolition is abolition works, but pretty much it's all in the name. <laughs> it's very much about abolishing systems or uh, facilities and getting rid of those to, and trying to imagine a world where out without prisons. Um, that is not what slavery abolitionists are about, but that is what prison abolitionists are about. And they also um, do not address what we're dealing with as a crime against humanity. Uh, you heard it uh, through her right there, she's under the assumption that the majority of people are guilty. Uh, even mentioning, you know, uh, how we didn't actually abolish slavery, 
But somehow that became like something you put on the back burner. Like, you know, we didn't abolish slavery, but let's go ahead and talk about this other thing. Like, how does that possibly become something on the back burner? But it is. Uh, it's not a part of the narrative of prison abolition, uh, nor is, as I said, the idea that the majority of the people who are in prisons and jails right now are only there because they generate revenues. They've been criminalized, demonized, and then hunted like wild game in the streets and then put in these cages, some of them never making it to the cages. We know how it works every day. All right. So I'm going to be going through a few of these things pretty quickly today. As I said, if uh, you brought a notebook, feel free to take notes. Uh, the second in the list of groups that are vying for narratives uh, to control the narrative are the um, criminal justice reformists. Uh, I put them right after the prison abolition because they have something in common. Uh, and I'll explain what that something in common is. But let's go ahead and listen to an example of, and you know, like prison abolition, it's a very popular narrative. In some circles, it's almost assumed that this is uh, the train of thought that one should follow and anything else is crazy talk. Uh, if we come into the room talking about this as slavery, criminal justice reformists will remind us that it is not slavery. Slavery ended in 1865. And if you could just tweak a few things here and there, fix this, fix that, give the prisoners bunny slippers, let people out a little bit earlier, then everything will be okay. And this is just the results of mistakes made over time and uh, errors in judgment uh, and during times when we weren't alive. Other guys did it. So it's not our fault. We just have inherited it and we have to deal with it. So let's go ahead and listen to rapper Meek Mill speaking out about the criminal about criminal justice reform. Remember, he was incarcerated at one point, and it became quite the cause celeb. Uh, and then it's going to be followed by Meek Mill once more with his track 1942 Flows, which was something that he put together directly inspired by his experiences with the criminal justice system. Once again, you're listening to Max Parthas here on Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. Abolition. Just 11 days after his release from prison, Meek Mill has hit the ground running. The rap star, now the new face in a fight for criminal justice reform. I feel like God has given me uh, a great platform to help many others. A joint press conference with Pennsylvania's governor about new legislation. I believe we can improve the criminal justice system so that we can protect the victims of crimes. But we can do that while also ending the cycle of incarceration. Mill's release on bail, celebrated by stars like Jay-Z and comedian Kevin Hart. But tonight, he's still under court supervision, nearly 10 years after his convictions at age 19 on weapons and drug charges. I always feel like I could be, uh, my freedom could be taken. Like last year, when he violated that probation, when he was caught popping a wheelie on a motorcycle. He was also involved in a separate altercation. Both charges were dismissed, yet a judge sentenced him to two to four years in prison for violating his probation, a sentence many saw as unduly harsh. Like Mills' close friend and co-owner of the Philadelphia 76ers, billionaire Michael Rubin. I came down here and started uh, hanging with my family more often. 
Yesterday, the two went back to the South Philly Stoop, where Mill was arrested in 2007. How do you explain why your case has become so important? I was a public figure. This is the same thing that thousands of other minorities are going through on a daily basis. They just don't have the platform to have anybody speak on their behalf. You can see more of our conversation in a Dateline special, Dreams and Nightmares, the Meek Mill story, this Sunday night at 7, 6 Central. Meek, Meek, you're just getting out, you're just getting out of prison. How does it feel to be part of the system? I feel like a free slave, and I feel like I've been targeted uh, by certain people. Just being out in the streets, somebody know they can take your freedom at any time. You got uh, cops, you see they charge me F1 felonies, they see me riding a bike. That kind of tells it all, you get F1 felonies when you shoot somebody, when you stab somebody. I was charged with that for riding a bike, you know. My freedom online, unfortunately, I made mistakes when I was younger. And, you know, it's telling me for the rest of my life, so if I'm going to be the example and got to stand up, somebody always got to take the L, and, you know, I... Time to level up, to stand up and be the person I do, set example for the young brothers coming up at me. So what are you going to do now that you're free? Oh, yeah. Started up poor with plans to own more. Now we own stores and fuck the baddest horse. I was on tour with niggas that so raw. Started selling white, we won't sell it no more. Like Trump ain't feeling us, cops still killing us. Niggas taking shots, can't stop me. They ain't real enough, cut her off, act like she did, and it's killing her. New dorm, earn my seats, I left the ceiling up, just to kill him softly. Ooh, get him on me, try to crucify me like I'm Jesus, the way she crossed me. I'm too bossy and too thorough, the mood like a weirdo, on point like an arrow. We started off with zero, now I'm seeing M's, diamonds like water and they jumping out the gym. Shooting like hard if your head was the rim, cause niggas wanna line me like a ship up in a trim, damn. Back when I was broke, they was cool with it. Now every move I make, I'm in the news with it. Even if I ain't do it, they be like, you did it. My teacher always used to tell me, you gon' lose, nigga. That's why I never went to school, nigga. And why I'm rapping like I got something to prove, nigga. When and bought the mansion with the pool in it. Billy with the stab, I get a two with it. Move with it, cause these niggas wanna take my life. No weapon form against me every time I pray at night. Scooping thotties in the phantom, that's the way I life. And make them fuck they best friends like that was dice. Reaching for the Glock every time I play the light. I'm on 12 o'clock every time I play them bikes. I'm with the pack, uh, getting back, yeah. Spin dope, nigga, selling smack, gang. I'm getting chips off music like rap snack, yeah. Timidly cash off after good expect. Money, power, respect, eating brothers on the jet. I know these niggas upset, they ain't see me fall yet. What's the love? They wanna see me fall, and I will never sell my soul. Most of shit that they ain't seen before Dream chasing, catching all my goals And I don't need these hoes I'm getting money, me and all my woes Play with me, you know it's all out war The young niggas going all out for Talk, this my cocky flow Damn, damn, why you sending Mr. Miyagi though? This that rose gold pen, coming like 94 Mean nothing to me, I tell you how I got it though Rain sleep on that corner when the block was slow Everybody was trying to track, we started popping no Heard that bitch said she cut me, I was like adios In the field, knock him down, it look like domino Young nigga, I turn my empire to a race When you get a dollar, they gon' hate Pull my mind to crib with the gate Private school for all them babies, now they straight nigga They wanna see me fall And I will never sell my soul Almost some shit that they ain't seen before 
dream chasing, catching all my goals. And I don't need these hoes. I'm getting money, me and all my woes. Play with me, you know it's all I want. The young niggas going all out for. Welcome back to Abolition Today. That was rapper Meek Bill speaking out on NBC prior to his special there about criminal justice reform, followed by his song, 1942 Floats. Um, And we played that as a representation of criminal justice reform, the narrative uh, that is out there that a lot of people believe, uh, particularly those who are involved in the political arena and legal arena. You know, for many, it's hard to believe or even conceive that slavery might still be legal and in practice. It's uh, anathema. It's something that puts them into complete denial of the facts as they are. And, you know, you didn't hear McMill mention anything about no 13th in that particular interview or in the song. You didn't hear him uh, mention much about mass incarceration, but he was subject to it. Uh, the very systems that criminalize you and then will destroy your life in a moment over nothing and put you into a cage and turn you into property who's no longer even has a name. You have a number and then take away all your constitutional rights, all your citizenship rights. And as was stated in the Virginia Supreme Court case of Ruffin versus, versus Commonwealth, to treat your estate as if you were a dead man. Um, You didn't hear any of that uh, with him. Uh, As a matter of fact, (laughs) towards the end with this song, his reply to what's going on and what happened to him, where he almost spent four years in prison for popping a freaking wheelie, um, is the answer to it is to get money, get stuff, uh, get security for yourself and for your family. And that's the answer to it. Protect yourself in that way. Money will protect you. Uh, At least that's what he was saying and feeling in that uh, song. And that's not a solution because there is no magic bullet. It don't matter how much money you got. uh, There is no way you can protect yourself. If they want you, they're going to get you, period. And all your money will be their money when it's done. Um, so there's no, we've seen rich black people, rich minorities get affected by this system uh, just as much as we have seen those who are hunted the most, the ones with the least to give. They're the ones that really bear the largest brunt of this whole thing. Um, what criminal justice reform says is that if we change a few things here and there, we can fix this 158-year-old problem that we've had. Uh, uh, we can work our way out of it by being kind and uh, being considerate and compassionate for those who are subject uh, to the systems as we know them today. But let me point out something that is clear fact. You cannot, let me repeat that, you cannot reform a crime against humanity. Period. You, you can't do that. Uh, you can't reform genocide. 
you can't reform slavery, uh, you can't uh, reform a crime against humanity. It's just not possible. And if you're doing that, if that's your goal, it means that you do not recognize a crime against humanity, even though it's happening right in your face. You know, we could put out the statistics on what's happening there where uh, less than 6% of the population make up nearly 40% of the prison population. And I'm talking about black men of adult age. Uh, We can say things like we have the largest prison population that's ever existed on planet Earth with more black men behind bars and in cages than the belated African nations do combined. We can point out all of the deaths that are occurring. We're in just the last decade Uh, We've seen uh, police kill over uh, 20,000 people just in the last decade, nearly 20,000 people, enough people to fill one of these arenas. Like uh, today they have in uh, WrestleMania. You could probably fill one of these arenas that they have with dead bodies just from the people that the police have killed. And if you add in those who have died at the hands of prison guards or because of negligence or, or, or Sandra Blanning in the jails and prisons, it could likely go up to as many as 36,000 people in just a single decade. So how exactly do you re, uh, reform that? It's a really good question that I would love to hear the answer to. Over the years uh, and on other programs that I've hosted doing the research on this issue, I've had the opportunity to interview uh, people from each of these different disciplines, whether it be uh, prison abolition or criminal justice reform and others, in order to get a clearer idea of what it is they're trying to achieve in their own words. And I found that they are missing uh, quite a bit of information, if not outright ignoring quite a bit of information, uh, like those statistics that I just pointed out to you. And what criminal justice reform and prison abolition have in common, I mentioned earlier, is that they do not view this or address it as a crime against humanity. To them, this is not a human rights issue. Uh, It is more about um, fixing parts of uh, or abolishing parts like abolish ICE, abolish police, abolish bail. Uh, or fix bail, fix ICE, uh, fix policing for profit, and on and on and on. As I said, you can't reform a crime against humanity. And all the abolitionists that I know of in the antebellum period, I've never once heard of a Haitian abolitionist. Never heard of it. They were very much on the same page at that time. They did not believe that abolishing plantations would abolish slavery because they knew that there was other ways in which slavery, people would exploit uh, black bodies through slavery, like they were doing in the North already with their exception clauses and criminal justice system. Um, So no prison, no plantation abolitionists I ever heard of prior to 1865. That's some new stuff that Jada made up. Um, And again, there is that matter of the missing link, which is convict leasing. Convict leasing is something that not many people know about or have learned in school, uh, which followed up immediately after chattel slavery. It was in place prior to chattel slavery, as a matter of fact. With slavery, when it changes around, it usually has this next generation uh, in place prior to the change occurring. 
and convict leasing was one of those. For instance, uh, we celebrate now as a legal holiday the end of slavery through a holiday called Juneteenth, uh, which represents June 19th and says that that's the day that General Granger came in with the Northern Army to inform the those who were enslaved in Texas that they had been freed, and they were the last people to find out. And so, poof, that was the end of slavery. But what they're not taught is that within months, Texas began convict leasing with sugar, the cane, for instance, and other things that they had already been doing with slaves and just used prisoners instead. And that happened within months. And it happened all across the country as uh, slavery was allegedly ab abolished, and then it was replaced with a criminal justice system that was set up to criminalize the same people who had just been enslaved, and then turn them back into property, taking away all the rights that they had fought a freaking civil war to gain, and turning them into state property and putting them back to work for free. Uh, once again, I want to say uh, I'm on my own today. My co-host isn't in, so I got a little bit of extra time. If you'd like to join the conversation, the number is 515-605-9814. Remember to press 1 on your keypad. I see we do have a few listeners here on listening on their phone. Remember to press 1 on your keypad if you have a question or a comment. So that is the defining line for us on this these two groups that are attempting to control the narrative about what we face within our criminal justice system. That's what they have in common. They do not address what is occurring as a crime against humanity. They do not see it as a human rights issue that needs to be dealt with immediately. Uh, they ignore the facts about the exception clause of the 13th Amendment as if this exclusion clause doesn't really matter, even in the supreme laws of the land. It doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. Uh, it, Lord, I know there's a, quite a few record label agents who would love to talk to these people. Because if you don't think loopholes are going to be exploited, these record labels need to talk to you. <laughs> uh, so that is what it, they have in common. And as I said before, you cannot, you cannot reform a crime against humanity. Now, I mentioned earlier during the segment after Angela Davis had spoken is that we also do not look at the people who are subject to this crime against humanity, the systemic oppression, as someone who needs to be saved. Uh, right now, uh, I mentioned earlier, 200, up as many as 240,000 people wrongfully convicted, and there's no plan for them. Even when it comes to things like reparations, they're lost in the sauce. Like, you know, nobody mentions about how much prisoners should get. Right now in California, they're going through the conversations of potentially paying as much as like $800 billion or something like that. I haven't had a, heard a word about what the inmates might get who, who have been subject to this continuous form of slavery and involuntary servitude. And they do have voices for who are innocent, who have been railroaded in systems like the school to prison pipeline, in systems like over policing or predatory policing. As a matter of fact, today I was listening to uh, Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie, where he was talking about uh, a case in Kansas City, Missouri, 
where police have filed a lawsuit alleging that they were being told, being told by their higher authorities to target minority neighborhoods in order to make ticket quotas. Uh, They were told that they should do this because it was easier to target people who could not defend themselves. And we see this happening day in, day out, all across America, where uh, we're talking about how everybody is guilty, but we're not pointing any fingers at the uh, predatory policing where they are literally hunting you in the street after criminalizing you. I mean, Meek Mill was an example of that, right? Four years in prison for doing a freaking wheelie on a bicycle. Uh, But, you know, we see them go into our communities and gather us up like they were in shopping malls, however many you need to put in these prisons and jails to fill your quotas. It often starts with the interactions of uh, fines and fees on traffic violations. Sometimes those end in fatalities. but it also uh, is involved with the fines and fees beyond that as well. Uh, remember when the Department of Justice went over to Ferguson uh, to investigate there and found out, just like in other places like Missouri and Ohio, that this was blatant constitutional violations happening and that the police had been turned into revenue generators. They had a city right next to it called, um, I think it was called, I'm trying to think of the name of it. Uh, something court. Anyway, the city right next to it uh, had more warrants for arrest than they had people in it. Like, how was that even possible? How do you have more warrants for arrest than there are people in the freaking town? But, but this is how we've been criminalized to generate revenue. And we go around now with some of these narratives telling everybody that it's all our fault. That if we just pull up our pants, cut off our dreads, and stop swearing, and stop smoking reefers, nobody would ever bother us. We'd be fine. Or like Nate Bill said, if you get your money up right, uh, you'll be protected, and you've got stuff, you'll be protected. But there is no magic bullet to protect us, particularly those who do not have the resources to be able to fight against the system. And so the police in Missouri are sent into minority communities so that they can get more tickets out of people who are barely paying rent. And if you can't, you have to make a choice between rent or the tickets, because if you don't pay the tickets, guess what's going to happen? You're going to go to jail. If you have to make that choice, you're going to end up being homeless, because it literally is your freedom on the line right now. And this is what we saw with the Jim Crow era, uh, where, you know, we talk about Jim Crow being a successor to slavery, but often you don't, people don't explain how. And what happened is when you broke one of these laws, like, drinking out of a whites-only fountain, using a whites-only bathroom, eating at a whites-only counter, or anything along the lines of those many, many things that have been criminalizing uh, black people, like vagrancy laws and stuff like that, you ended up in a freaking prison. If you couldn't afford to pay the fine, you ended up in a freaking prison. And these prisons, during the convict lease system, were so horrible that the average lifespan was under 10 years. And what did they do to you during this period? They would literally work. So let's go ahead and listen to the voices. Well, actually, I got a caller calling in. So let's go ahead and bring in a caller before I go to the next clip. A762, you're on Abolition Today with Max Parthas. I think that's Corinne. Hi, Max. (laughs) Hey, Corinne. You are a professor. 
a professor. And I just wanted to let you know, I call you Abraham, but I don't know if you want me to call you Abraham in front of <laughs> the world. Um, you know, because when you said work you to death, I thought about Ben and Jerry's, which is having their free ice cream day actually on Monday. But I wanted to ask you, um, because you know how they promote it to everybody to keep prison alive in Louisiana, just out to the world. And I wanted to ask you both a comment and a question, because I definitely see the vengeance that you're talking about with Angela Davis, because um, the woman refused to shake my hand, a future lawyer, a future lawmaker's hand, when I said thank you, but she publicly agreed. It's on camera. Everybody heard it. All of the Flynn Auditorium heard it when she said that she is a slavery abolitionist. So whatever she said in the past no longer matters. She said that she's a slavery abolitionist. But I wanted to ask you, Mass, because you are the professor, and I come to you when I have questions a lot, and because Jill Jill Biden is coming to Vermont on Wednesday. This is the both second most powerful woman in the whole entire free world. And I wanted to ask you, because you aided me when I asked um, Angela Davis the question, what would what things should I ask her to know that she is on our mission statement of abolition today? Like, what is the things that we should know from our leaders to ensure that they're really on our side? Um, what what Do you mean kind of question the vice president, Kamala kids? Harris? No, 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 no. The first lady. I'm sorry. The first lady is coming to um, oh, Vermont on Wednesday. Jill yes. Biden. Jill um, Biden. Doctor Jill yeah. Biden. Okay. Yes. Um Well, as you already know, I got no love for the Bidens at all. Um, I believe that they are uh, very much guilty of crimes against humanity themselves this is for the what wife. happened in the 1994. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, what you should ask her is, does her husband? support mm-hmm. the abolition amendment introduced by Senator Merkley and uh, Congresswoman Williams. Gotcha. I, yes I'm writing no? it down. I got my journal. Right. The abolitionist, uh, uh, the abolition amendment by Senator Merkley and Nakima Williams. Do they support that? Um, I'm sure they have heard of it because we've had communications with the White House in regards to this issue. And get them on the record. Do you or don't you support it? And if they pretend uh, to be stupid, or she pretends to be stupid, like what is the abolition amendment? You can feel free to explain it to her. It is the amendment that will counter the slavery and involuntary servitude exception clause found in the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, effectively banning slavery from our greatest document in the United States. Right, I go where the law goes, and you know I agree with you because you go, you gotta. If they're gonna be doctors, you have to show them. You have to ask them, do you deserve that doctor? So I'm definitely not gonna let none of them play stupid because they are all are very intelligent. So like you, Max, you truly are the professor. The professor. Thank you so much, Max. Thank you, Corinne. Appreciate you. Um, and yeah, it, I I suspect, highly suspect, that the Clintons, or oh, not the Clintons, well, the Bidens. What's the difference anyway? The Bidens are not slavery abolitionists. They would probably tell you that they're more aligned with criminal justice reform. As I mentioned earlier, when it comes to politics, uh, they don't want to press hot buttons, things that will really rile people up, like saying slavery is legal. Uh, They would prefer to be in denial and treated as if this is not a human rights issue. So you can't expect that anything in regards to slavery abolition out of them, but you can expect them to support a bill that is already uh, a joint resolution that has already been submitted. 
So hopefully they do that. All right. So I'm yeah, saying, because, go ahead, uh, Corinne. Oh, yeah, because I just wanted to just real quick, because like you said, you know, if they want you, they'll get you. So this protects all of us because, you know, you can rise up, you can be a millionaire, you can be a songstress, a lyricist. But when they want you, they can get you, and this takes us that card out of the table. Thank you, Matt. Right. Back to listening. One of the things that Vermont said was that slavery is not a Vermont value. Well, that's a national uh, statement you can make, too, to them. Is slavery a United States? Because it literally is legal in our Constitution, and it applies to all of the states of the United States. And uh, if that's a not a value for America, then let's take it the hell out, uh, such as we have done already now in seven states and counting. Uh, growing rapidly. All right, I was talking a lot earlier about the voices of the people who have been wrongfully convicted and subject to a system of oppression who rarely ever get mentioned in these narratives of what's going on. So let's go ahead and listen to what they have to say. Uh, This is the exoneree voices, the human toll of wrongful convictions from the New England Innocence Project. And it's also got a clip from John Oliver in his segment, Wrongful Convictions. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org with Max Parthas. Brother Yusuf Hassan is not with us tonight. He is very sick. Send out some healing vibes and prayers for him, please. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. Abolition. I spent 21 years, 7 months, and 29 days in prison for a crime I did not commit. I did 16 years. Estuve 32 años. I spent 27 years in prison for a crime I did not commit. Time I did not commit. For a crime I did not commit. Nobody should ever have to go through this. It does things to the human mind, the spirit, the body. It breaks you down in every possible way. I've had people not believe me. Perdí mi madre, perdí mi abuela. I lost my dad. My parents had to raise my two daughters. They were five and three when I went to prison. Took a toll on them and it took a toll on me. How do you pay somebody back for that? I could be your dad, I could be your son, I could be your brother, I could be your cousin, I could be you. I'm used to the system feeling, feeling me because I'm used to the system feeling my people. I have never gotten an apology. I never will. Nobody will ever admit they did anything wrong. Because once they admit they did something wrong, you have to look at the entire system. As a black exonerate, it's parallel to the experience of like the one slave. You can be taken from a land and put in the bondage. It's the same to me as uh, being taken from your community and put in bondage because of the color of your skin. The police department didn't look for any other suspects. Uh, they just wanted to close the case. We have a system whereby they're rewarded for the number of convictions they get. And unless there's change, there's always going to be innocent people in prison. When I see a person is honored, for me, that gives me force to continue Get involved um, in, in correcting the injustice. I hope that no one will ever have to go through what I went through. You know, enjoy life, man. You know, pay more attention. My name is Sean K. Ellis. Ronnie Quarles. Matt Cazenza. Victor Rosario. My name's Ray Champagne. My exoneration number is 2,653. I'm exoneree number 2129. There's many more like me that could be like you. 
so with a system so fundamentally fucked, what do we do? In addition, we should continue to address all of the many factors that lead to wrongful convictions in the first place. And when they do happen, we need to make sure that we've elected prosecutors who will undertake conviction integrity reviews and governors who use their pardon power to undo the state's mistakes. We need to make this a priority. Because right now we have a system where people can be wrongly convicted with bad defense attorneys and left to fight in a convoluted appeal system with little to no help. At which point it really feels like our system is essentially guilty until proven rich or lucky. And that has to change. Because we cannot keep letting the most vulnerable be casualties of a system that cares more about quick and final decisions than actually correct ones. That is my verdict, and that's how I see it. Clomp, clomp, motherfuckers. Clomp, clomp. Abolition. Abolition. Clomp, clomp, mofos. Clomp, clomp. <laughs> that was the exonery voices, the human toll of wrongful convictions. New England Innocence Project with a clip from John Oliver's Wrongful Convictions, which I suggest you watch. Um, and just to point out, that was just New England voices. These voices are all across the country, uh, wrongful convictions. We've seen more people being exonerated than ever before. And most of the time, you find that it's because of the prosecutorial misconduct, policeman's misconduct, or just people being framed. I'm broadcasting today live from the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center in Sumter, South Carolina. And the very first guest that we entertained here was Ricky Kidd. Ricky Kidd spent 23 years in prison for a double murder to which he did not commit. And he had been framed for in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, Everybody knew he was innocent. The judge knew he was innocent. The prosecutor worked on his behalf, knowing he was innocent. The police knew he was innocent. The governor knew he was innocent. And yet he spent 23 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. He had like the best alibi you could ever want. Uh, he was, at the time of these uh, murders occurred, he was in the freaking police station getting a license for his gun, all on camera. Uh, and, you know, it's not like you just walk in and walk out. It takes some time. So he was there for several hours on camera in the police department, in the police station. And yet he spent 23 years in prison. And you know what was even worse than spending 23 years in prison? When they finally let you out without so much as an apology and then tell you, you don't get a damn dime for anything. Uh, you're just gone. Go ahead. Have a nice day. Try to live your life after having it destroyed utterly. Uh, Missouri is one of those states that has no compensation for the wrongfully convicted. None at all. Um, and they are working on it. Uh, but that is a slap in the face. Imagine that happening to you or somebody in your family. And we must always um uh, amplify the voices of those who are just being railroaded through the system. You know, I'm a slavery abolitionist. I'm not a prison abolitionist. To me, I feel like um, people commit actual crimes in this country. There's people who do do murders, like the woman who just killed three children and three adults in a school. uh, And those like Dylan Roof, here in my own community who murdered nine innocent people in a church, uh, those who are involved in rape, molestation, 
and all different kinds of crimes. Like they should be separated from uh, society, but they shouldn't be treated like animals. We don't have to be monsters to deal with monsters. Uh, but that only represents a small portion of the entire prison population, maybe as much as a quarter or 30% of the entire prison population. The rest is people who have been involved in nonviolent, drug-related, poverty-related crimes. Uh, and they are suffering right alongside those who have committed these atrocities. And they have no business being there. Uh, they're just there in order to help the state or the federal government uh, generate revenue and control particular populations. Because uh, you're not making no babies in, in prison, that's for sure. Uh, it, it doesn't work that way, you know, and that also leads to a genocide. It's imagine the, the number of kids that you prevented from being ever born uh, because you have incarcerated the male population of certain segments to such a degree, a degree that you have literally eliminated the potential for new generations to come up. And that's kind of what they want, you know. Uh, they want to stop you from breeding. They uh, they don't want to see you have children. I remember we played a segment a few weeks ago where the sheriff was talking about how if you don't have a high school education uh, and uh, you're one of these bad people, you should not be having 10, 12 kids. I mean, he was using these tropes, of course, about, you know, how uh, black people are supposed to be. But basically saying that we want to commit genocide on you. We want to lock you up and throw away the key. He even said that we need to warehouse these people, warehouse their bodies. And they don't get no good time. They don't get to see the sunlight. They don't do nothing uh, to make their life any less miserable. Just warehouse them like uh, pieces of metal. So you just throw it up in a, a cage somewhere. When in actuality, they're pieces of gold. They're, they're black gold. And you're warehousing them like a freaking bank, um, making that money on them. Some states uh, are blatant with how they exploit the system to generate revenue. Uh, we often talk about New York being the one that leads the way, where just for a pretrial pre detention center, uh, the taxpayer has to cough up $560,000 a year in order to incarcerate a single person in pretrial for a single year inside of a facility that should have been abandoned a long time ago. That is literally a hell on earth, and everybody knows it. Uh, so these are, are the voices that I would like to amplify today uh, and to let you know that we hear you and uh, we want your freedom too. All right. So, We've covered so far the prison abolitionists, criminal justice reformists, and we've heard from the voices of the exonerees here in the United States. Uh, I guess the next one we'll be going to is the third narrative. Now, this third and fourth narratives have a lot in common, but they have that dividing line between them and the first two. As I mentioned, the first two do not address this as a crime against humanity. They do not address this as a human rights issue that needs immediate attention, not only by national uh, leadership, 
but internationally should be denounced and addressed uh, and held accountable for what they're doing. They don't see that at all. But the second group does, and that starts with prison slavery abolition. Prison slavery abolition, again, is in the, the name. You hear a lot of that, uh, particularly from you know our federal amendment uh, uh, efforts uh, with the activists who are working towards the abolition amendment on a federal level. They very much focus almost exclusively on free labor. Uh, the a- ACLU did a report just a few months ago uh, called uh, com- uh, called uh, ACLU did a report. I-, I suck at these these understanding these or remembering these titles today. Apparently, uh, captive labor it was called captive labor. They did a report, a report called captive labor. I think it was 154 pages. I read all of it. And in that, they almost exclusively focused, again, on free labor, exploitation of free labor. Prison slavery abolition focuses on the prison slavery aspect of it, forced labor, um, and how people are subject to this. And I have reminded them over time, and even just recently, that there's two exceptions in the 13th Amendment and in most of these state constitutions. It says slavery and involuntary servitude. And they're focusing, from my perspective, primarily on the involuntary servitude part. It's not much different than slavery, but slavery's there too. <laughs> you know, you can't ignore the, the slavery part in favor of the involuntary servitude because as we mentioned and spoke of in the past two weeks with the New York abolitionists, this issue goes beyond prison walls. But there is those who focus exclusively on what happens within the prison walls and the forced labor aspect and the conditions that they have to labor under uh, and how they are subject to uh, being punished for refusing to do any job whatsoever. Remember the story of Brother Sam Brown, who was the original author of ACA3, which was the California uh, Abolition Amendment. Now it's ACA, ACA8, I believe, this year. Uh, but remember his story, he was one of the first people to add the toll to go into a cell in prison where someone had died of COVID and clean it up. And this was during the height of the fear of COVID, where we, people were like, wow, we're going to die if we just touch this surface, if we breathe that air, if we don't have a mask, we are going to die. And he didn't want to do it. And he ended up facing as much as 15 more years in prison for refusing to risk his life in that uh, circumstance. And he was only doing it for like, I think he told me it was 87 cents an hour which is high paying in California, apparently, to go in and clean up this mess. And his refusal almost cost him 15 years. Uh, fortunately, they fought against that, him and his wife, uh, Jamelia Land, and they were successful. And he ended up getting out. And the brother is on the ground running, getting the work done right now, leading the way in the California amendment. Uh, so... Let's go ahead and call. So let me take the call, and then we'll get into our next uh, group, which is trying to control the narrative, which is prison slavery abolition. All right. 
3251. You are on with Max Parkers here on Abolition Today. I think that's Sean. You might be on mute. There we go. Sorry, I thought I had was <laughs> off mute. All um, right. So we've talked about this before as Maine being um, heavily um, involved in the prison abolition narrative. And I'm, I'm wondering how you see um, how the narrative changed. I know I would say, in my experience, it's one of the dominant narratives um, right now. Um, how do you see that change over time slowly, or is it – I, I studied abolition for capital punishment in the um, late 90s when critical resistance um, was starting. So I kind of um, started studying slowly, um, learned a lot in the last few years since talking to you. <laughs> But um, that's kind of like the lens I kind of came from capital punishment and critical resistance and then um, reparations and then <laughs> kind of got thrown, you know, back to the original issue of slavery. So I'm kind of wondering how you've seen, if you've seen the narrative change slowly or more just recently. Um, I think they started out with this narrative and that they've maintained it throughout and that they've had access to academia and to political uh, institutions in full to be able to get this narrative spread out far and wide. So they have entire classes about it now um, where they teach mm-hmm. them about prison abolition. Uh, and I would just like to point out that if your oppressor approves of your narrative, you probably don't have the right narrative. So if the politicians are supporting this, uh, if those who are traditionally in the oppressing business are saying, yes, we're prison abolitionists, it's probably because you're not holding anybody accountable for crimes against humanity. And so they feel safe adopting these narratives that don't threaten them whatsoever. And I suspect uh, just listening to the discourse that goes on about this particular narrative is that they expect it will never happen. They do not see a day where we have gotten rid of all prisons and there is no more prisons in the United States. They just don't see, it's like fantasy land in their minds. And that's how they view the narrative. So as I said, if the oppressor is in alignment with your narrative, you probably don't have the right narrative. Sure. I guess maybe we can just reformulate the, the question is more um, like historically over time. So you're talking earlier about um, slavery abolition kind of, you know, because slavery is a central problem and people, citizens could see that for a long time. And then it seems um, maybe even like a century or a century and a half, we have a different narrative. I was wondering if you kind of see that narrative kind of pop up. Because um, um, I've seen it pop up in the late 1990s, but I'm not sure, yes. like from 1865 to um, if it kind of just, I'm just, I'm just no. trying to see how that became the dominant narrative, I guess. Um, never, it, nobody it, ever heard of it until, like you said, in the 90s or so, with critical resistance uh, coming out with okay. the prison abolitionist narrative. And uh, they stuck to their narrative. They want to abolish things and places and buildings. Um, <laughs> but they do not address any of this as a crime against humanity. And that's what they have in common with criminal justice reformists. And they're both missing huge parts of information or outright ignoring the facts of those information of that information just like not applying it whatsoever so that's why you don't hear either one of them really talking very much 
about this 13th Amendment or the state's constitutions that they live in having exception clauses or how, as I said, from the beginning to the end, this whole thing is set up to literally feed the machine, which is modern-day slavery, to criminalize people, to criminalize lifestyles, to criminalize locations in order Mm -hmm. to go in and hunt them and capture them and sometimes kill them or abuse them and then force them by kidnapping family members uh, into these systems and then exploiting them when they're in there with the fines and the fees and the exorbitant prices and the burdens put on family members who often can't afford any of this. Uh, So, yeah, uh, it hasn't changed since it started. given that it's been steady, but they have seen a lot of growth. And a lot of that is a direct result of the efforts of the slavery abolitionist organizations, uh, what slavery abolitionists have done. You know, it's epic to have removed slavery exception clauses from seven state constitutions. Uh, and a lot of the work that we do gets somehow attributed it to the prison abolition movement or even to criminal justice reform when they had absolutely nothing to do with it. Yeah, it seems um, because people don't, some some of the conversations I've heard, people say um, abolition, they almost assume prison abolition. It's almost like it's, they're they're privileging the whole movement. (laughs) You know, like it's almost like abolitionist privilege, you know, (laughs) like, of course you're referring to us, (laughs) you know. Look what they did to me recently, Sean, and you uh, helped me to – or you introduced me to some people who ended up putting me on an interview with Black Power Media. Remember remember the title of it? Now, everybody knows Max Parthas is a slavery abolitionist, and nonetheless, what did they put on the title? Max Parthas and prison abolition. True. (laughs) You know? Like, I felt insulted by that. I really did. Like, why would you do some dumb shit like that when you know very clearly what my fight is and what I'm about? You have literally just co-opted me completely just with the title alone. And that was why in the conversation when they were talking about how do you fight being co-opted, and I'm like, I'm being co-opted right now. The narrative is being co-opted right now. And how do I fight that? There's also... um a lot of, I don't say a lot, there's several people involved in these other narratives that are getting financed. Big, not not as, you know, the whole system is obviously billions of dollars, but they're getting millions of dollars. You know, prison and police abolitions are become very right. popular and they're getting financed through these philanthropy, philanthropic organizations, you know, like, just, and just look, look at mass incarceration as an example, right? Mass incarceration by itself is not a thing. It is a symptom of a much larger problem, all right? But there's money to be made in mass incarceration. If you're fighting mass incarceration, you'll get grants, you'll get government grants, you'll get mm-hmm. all kinds of money will come in as long as you're fighting mass incarceration. But the moment you say, mm-hmm. hey, maybe this is slavery, you ain't getting no grants, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Because no, slavery I, abolition I, I, holds people accountable. I'm glad that um, you brought um, Sam up a minute ago because I see, um, you know, what what the um, prison abolition and, and you know what these um, other abolition groups are doing is very much just been called academic abolition, but they're not. And it's not about politics, but what we're doing is changing laws 
you know, right. the problem is because it's legal and it's different than, you know, just a uh, uh, um, Well, to be honest, like we're doing a little bit more than changing laws. We are changing the constitutions, which are literally the supreme laws of the land. This is not some mm-hmm. subsection B slash A right, right. policy. True. This is the, literally the constitutions, which is something that is unheard of uh, in history mm-hmm. as we are doing it now. So uh, I just want to make sure that, that people understand the uh, depths of how how much we're doing here and what it is we're doing. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just um, contrasting, you know, what's happening, you know, in California, you know, and across the nation, you know, with what's happening in a lot of universities that are profiting off of this and writing all these books, but they're not changing any laws, you know, or I should say that these aren't changing any constitutional law, you know, like, it's right. not, you know, and um, <laughs> there's actually, I think, I, I won't maybe say the person's name, but there's there's actually, like, um, a book coming out at the end of this year called Change Everything, like, but you know, you change your narrative, you're not changing any laws, like, you know, it's just sometimes it's almost comedic, but it's not, you know, like, I guess I can't say this book hasn't been released, but um, it's just, it's definitely right. different. And, and, and you're doing a great job tonight breaking it down for everybody, so I appreciate that. Uh, thank you, Sean. Uh, thank you very much. I was a little bit concerned. Uh, one, I'm not used to doing the program by myself, you know what I mean? And second, sure. this is a very important issue that I think anybody who wants to understand what we're dealing with needs to listen to. And if you're a slavery abolitionist, you need to know this, that it's not – you don't have the only narrative in town, you know? There are other mm-hmm. narratives, and it's more than the four that I've mentioned. Those are just the four primary narratives that are out there. But there's others, like revolutionaries, you know what I mean? And uh, We just mm-hmm. had the anniversary of the Republic of New Africa, Free of the Land, uh, you know, and there's many, many more than that out there. But these are the four that everybody's pretty much following now. You, you're one or the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, was there anything else, Sean? Go ahead. Um, there's actually one last thing that I think about a lot because of all the themes of um, – of death and dying, I mean, this is a lot of focus, you know, when, when death happens, but people forget, people don't seem to focus on, well, slavery as, as an institution needs to die, you know, they kind of focus on people's lives, which is obviously important, you know, but why does that never shift to the death of the institution that's causing, you know, like, does that make any sense? It makes a lot of sense. Uh, a lot of the people around me, including myself, are exhausted. We have mm-hmm. been chasing every single incident. You know, a person dies today. There's a hashtag. It's a horrible situation. Police are responsible. We're out protesting and marching and talking about that. And that happens every single day. Another hashtag, another hashtag, another hashtag. And it's just like we keep fighting the symptoms of what we're re- what's really going on. And it keeps us running around in circles. Uh, and we never actually deal with the core issue. Slavery mm-hmm. is legal according to the U.S. Constitution and to, or, uh, until recently, as many as 25 state constitutions. Even in Puerto Rico, in their constitution, it's written in Spanish that slavery is abolished except a prisoner duly convicted in freaking Spanish in Puerto Rico. And that is a fact. That's not an opinion. That's something that something I think or I believe. It is a fact. And yet, mm-hmm. we do not address that. We ignore that as if it does not matter. Uh, would it be 
more beneficial for us to keep fighting these individual fights or to go directly for the root of the problem and work outward from there. If you get rid of this legality, the ripple effects are going to happen. They're already happening in states that have done it. Colorado's in a fight for the next stage now challenging the the badges and incidents of slavery. Alabama is in the next stage now of challenging the badges and incidents of slavery. And other states that have worked on this, like Vermont, are also now going into the second stage of this. But there wouldn't be a second stage if they had not abolished slavery the first to begin with. If they had not removed that, this opportunity would not even exist for them to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's what we want for the whole country, to have the opportunity to start challenging the badges and incidents of slavery without a constitutional amendment to protect it as an institution. No, absolutely. I, yeah, I think a lot of people or too many people, um, I know you think recently put something out about the soul. I think what 82% of people don't even know. But people don't even know. Assume, you know but, yeah, but um, slavery is a dead institution, you know, where it's very much alive, you know, the laws, you know. Right. So I guess and that's kind of what my point was. It's very much alive, you know. Very so much alive. Ways. And it's a fact. It's not a guess or an opinion or a feeling or a thought. Right. It's a freaking fact backed up by evidence, clear evidence. The most clear you could ever imagine is right there in front of you. All you have to do is read the amendment, except for prisoners duly convicted. And if you're going to be a slave of the state, you're not even required to be in prison to be subject to those exception clauses. Uh, It does not say anything in the exception clause about how you need to go to prison to be a slave. It simply says you need to be duly convicted. And once you're duly convicted, you are now owned by the state. Uh, the brother that was with us last week, Julio Montequin, was on the line with us, on probation, subject to everything that the 13th Amendment subjects you to when it comes to this slavery and involuntary servitude. You couldn't vote. Remember, <coughs> excuse me. we talked about how he had uh, almost been indicted for Daring to try to vote after 50 years in prison Uh, He doesn't Mm -hmm. have the rights other citizens have He doesn't have access to the same type of assistance With housing and food that others might have He still has not gotten back his rights And he's not in a prison And there's millions like that Uh, Six and a half million people can't vote Because of felony convictions Subject to the slavery clause Who are not behind bars at the moment Our our system has gotten so aggressive now that they've expanded it beyond the 13th Amendment itself. They started uh, exploiting it through the prison, through the jail systems. They're exploiting it through the immigration systems. Anywhere you can cage a human being and collect money on the fact that they're caged is where they're going. And we see that happening in places like New York, where they spent billions building new jails. California, billions building new jails. Uh, Alabama is spending like more than a billion dollars to do what? Build a new prison. And it's not about crime, and it's not about punishment. It's about creating revenue and controlling populations that are seen as undesirable. All right. Um, Go ahead. I was going to just say real quick, I, I um, 
this piece was thinking about, you know, the end of um, the Civil War, 1865, and the end of World War II, you know, 1945, and, you know, three years after the Universal Declaration, there's no exception in that. Just, you know, why couldn't that have happened, you know, in this country? I guess I know why, but that didn't happen in this country. And, you know, three years after, you know, World War II, we have Universal Declaration, and you probably go into the human rights as well, you know, human rights. That's one of the fundamental human rights is not to be enslaved. It's not. It's been changed also right. to you know, housing. You know, like it's all related, housing or food or you know whatever. But like, it's, it's probably the, one of the fundamental human rights is also being sidelined by these other narratives as well in a lot of cases. Um, you know, I've said it before, and I will say it again. If we were animals like gorillas or uh, e- emus or goats. They would know exactly how the what would happen to that population if you went in and just started plucking out the males of it and abusing the remaining population and putting them through unimaginable suffering. They know they would tell us exactly what would happen to this animal population. But when it comes to human beings, suddenly we're stupid. We don't know. But if you take out all of these men from the community. I don't know what's going to happen. It's, you know, mm-hmm. unexpected consequences. <laughs> it's a mm-hmm. damn shame. Right. The levels of conscientious stupidity and sincere ignorance that surrounds us right now. <clears throat> we literally have people who are behind bars right now, subject to 13th Amendment slavery, who have been railroaded into the system and have no idea that they are slaves of the state. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and get into the last, uh, second to last of our four narratives, and that is prison slavery abolition. Uh, we're going to hear a clip from Is Slave Labor Still Legal in America from Now This Originals? And that's going to be followed by Rosie, which is an African-American work song uh, from the Negro prison songs from the Mississippi State Penitentiary. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org with Max Parthas, and we are talking about the four uh, groups that are competing to control the narrative about what we're – we'll be right back after this. Abolition Abolition. Today. So I got caught off guard by something recently. It has to do with the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which abolished slavery. The amendment reads, in part, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, shall exist within the United States. All of that made perfect sense to me, minus this one part, except as a punishment for crime. Basically, that says you can punish a criminal with slavery. And we do, all over the country, all the time. It's called prison labor. We're all sort of familiar with the idea. Prisoners making license plates is the classic example, but that is the tip of the iceberg. Across the country, convicts do work in carpentry, sewing, mining, packaging, firefighting, telemarketing, fish farming, and artisanal cheese making. That last one is why this is back in the news. Whole Foods took some flack for selling felon-made cheese, and at a pretty hefty markup. Now, according to the American Civil Liberties Union, this isn't inherently a problem. Most prisoners want to work, and jobs for prisoners can be a very positive thing. That's David Foti from the ACLU's National Prison Project. But given the vast power inequality between prisoners and their employers, there's also a real potential for exploitation and abuse. 
That potential is grounded in the fact that this really is slave labor. Inmates can be forced to work as long as they're deemed fit, and can be punished if they don't, including, in some cases, with solitary confinement. And then there's the question of money. We don't have to pay prisoners a dime for their work. Some states do require that prisoners are paid, but courts have consistently ruled that any pay is, quote, by the grace of the state. In other words, just to be nice. Meaning, more broadly, that prisoners are highly vulnerable. Prisoners can't unionize. If they're injured or killed on the job, in most states they're not protected by workers' compensation. So all of this creates a situation where the usual checks on employer exploitation and abuse simply don't operate. This all means that there's no consistency in what prisoners are paid for those cheese wheels and telemarketing calls. Pay scales range from nothing to around the federal minimum wage, but many are paid under a dollar an hour. And that can give the state what Fauci calls a perverse incentive to keep the prison population high. Last year, when California was ordered to release some prisoners to relieve overcrowding, the state actually argued against it on the ground that it would reduce the state's access to prisoner labor. Things get more uncomfortable when you consider that America does not have a great track record when it comes to prison labor. After the Civil War, southern states struggled with a sudden lack of slave labor, thanks to the 13th Amendment. And their solution, in part, was to use that same clause, except as a punishment for crime, as a loophole. Many states passed broadly racist vagrancy laws that allowed authorities to pick up blacks on charges like loitering, imprison them when they couldn't pay fines, and lease them out en masse to places like plantations. In other words, the South got its slaves back. This system of convict leasing wasn't totally abolished until 1941. Our prison system has exploded since the 1980s, giving America far and away the biggest prisoner population in the world. And that population is racially skewed in the extreme. Around 40% of prisoners are black, even though only about 13% of the country is overall. The 13th Amendment, the abolition of slavery, that happened 150 years ago. And now, 150 years later, we have this prison system instead. And according to David Fauti, we should think hard about why we do. The purpose of incarceration should be to protect public safety, not to provide a captive labor force for the government.
Abolition. Welcome back to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org. That was Is Slavery Still Legal in America? From Now This Originals, followed by Rosie, an African-American work song, which was a Negro prison song that was recorded live in Parchman Prison in Mississippi, uh, which is another one of those hells on earth that uh, traced their existence directly back to chattel slavery, very much like uh, Louisiana's Angola prison, which was a former slavery plantation. Uh, I felt that you needed to hear and feel uh, the moment uh, of what they endured. Uh, It's true that slave labor exists in America. It is very true that they are forced to work either for free, which is uh, happens in as many, I think it's five states that pay nothing to prisoners, uh, and others where they only pay pennies on the dollar. Not only do they, uh, are, are they forced to labor within the prisons themselves, taking care of the jobs within the prisons, like cooking and cleaning and laundry and on and on, but they're also uh, leased out, very much the same as convict leasing, to corporate uh, organizations and companies like Whole Foods and Starbucks and McDonald's and Burger King uh, and Wendy's and uh, phone companies where if you call up asking uh, for assistance at AT&T, it's likely you might be speaking to someone doing 30 to life and making 11 cents an hour to enrich AT&T's bottom line using slave labor. All of that is very true. And this is why we're in alignment with prison slavery abolition, because those things are true. But, and there is a but here, uh, we find it detrimental to limit slavery to just prison labor, when slavery goes far beyond prison labor. And um, we think that is a mistake to do that. For instance, the argument that was made that women being forced to give birth Violation of the 13th Amendment, literal violation of forced labor. Um, And we asked the question, well, what about the women in prison? Is it okay with them, for them to be forced because they're in prison now? And these are questions that go unanswered by the general population. You know, um, slave labor is not the end-all, be-all of slavery. It begins with the criminalization of the people. It ends with Uh, the disenfranchisement for life of their rights, privileges, and even humanity. All of that is a part of what goes on in slavery. During the antebellum period, labor was not the only thing occurring. Forced labor was not the only thing occurring there. Here in South Carolina, we had slave breeding plantations where they were forcing you to have sex. Men Black men were expected to father as many as 12 children with whoever they were told to father children with. In places like Louisiana, women were being bred as prostitutes in order to fit the exotic desires of the people who would come to pay to have sex with these mixed-race black women. Slavery affects every aspect of human life not just forced labor. And by focusing 
exclusively on the labor aspect, it says to the world that the rest of that doesn't matter. The only thing matters to us is that we're forced to work for free. So that brings in the idea that, well, if we just pay you, is everything okay now? And it's not at all. That is not the simple solution to the problem. And by exclusively focusing on just labor, you are saying to the world that this warehousing of bodies that's being done is okay. Uh, They're not working. They're just slabs of meat on a bench, and somebody's collecting money on them. Uh, We're saying to the women in Tutwiler Prison in Alabama that your molestation by prison guards don't matter because that's not forced labor. That's not an aspect of slavery. Uh, we just focusing on the labor itself, and I think that's a huge mistake. But nonetheless, we sit on the other, lo- other side of the line in regards to how we view this from prison abolition and criminal justice reform. Prison slavery abolitionists and slavery abolitionists see this as a crime against humanity. We see this as uh, a human rights issue. And although prison slavery abolition does not expand as far and as holistically as slavery abolition has always done, it's still the same perspective nonetheless. So that's the dividing line between these four groups, which can be divided into two categories. Prison abolition and criminal justice reform do not address this as a crime against humanity, requiring an immediate national and international response, whereas prison slavery abolitionists and slavery abolitionists do see it exactly as that, a crime against humanity. And it begins while by removing the exception clause which allows all of this to be Ill, to be practiced legally within our society. It begins right in the Declaration of Human Rights. The abolition of slavery has no exceptions whatsoever. It doesn't say in Article 4 of the Declaration of Human Rights that slavery is abolished in all its forms except for America, who has an exception for prisons. They, they can get away with it. But everybody else, no exceptions at all. It doesn't say that at all. And if slavery is not an American value, then let's show the world it's not an American value by removing the allowances from our federal and state constitutions. And what happens after that deserves to happen. The ripple effects that come from that deserve to happen. The butterfly effect that will lead to other things deserves to happen. We've never seen it before. And we want to see it now. As the brother said last week, we don't even know what freedom looks like. We don't even know what freedom is. We've been subject to slavery for so long, we don't even know what it is or what it looks like. And I'd add to that, as I did last week, that we also don't seem to know what slavery looks like. 82% of the U.S. population, according to these polls that came out last year, have no idea that there's an exception clause for slavery practiced on uh, those who are duly convicted in our federal constitution. They just didn't know. A lot of the people listening right now, because remember, we're now on Amazon Music podcast, and we've got 10 times the listener base. A lot of the people tuning in for the first time today didn't know either. 
They're just finding out right now. And I bet you they're scratching their heads going, you know, he's right. It says it right there. (laughs) All right. So that is the four different groups that are vying for control of the narrative as to what we are facing here in the United States and beyond when it comes to this criminal justice system. And as I've showed you, they're divided in half as to whether they view it as a crime against humanity or not. I think the biggest problem uh, and what makes slavery abolition the one that really has the correct narrative is that we include history. We followed uh, the dots. We filled in the gaps with the right information. We traced the exception clause all the way back to 1777. We showed how 25 states included it. We've interviewed the people. We've talked to the experts, and it's all right there. And if you don't have that information as a part of your narrative, you're going to fill it, that big hole that isn't true. And that's what we've seen happen. It's been a heck of a show. Uh, just about got through it here. Um, I will take any last final comments from our callers, and then I got to get into thanking our sponsors and partners in our final segment, which is our Bridging the Gap segment that helps to wrap it all up. So, uh, Corinne or Sean? Um, I did have a question if Corinne didn't have a comment. I can have her go first. Oh, I just have something quickly to say. I totally agree with you, Matt. It's a crime against humanity. I just keep ringing in my ear when I work out. I'm going to listen to it again because it's so right. You know, federally, we have to change the federal constitution. And I hope for Vermonters it doesn't take um, the federal government, which wanted to charge uh, Bernie Sanders' wife for the federal crime. Um, I hope it doesn't take that for her to realize what is going on in our country. I hope that they actually decide... Maybe we have to charge her because, you know, they have charges against her and they decided not to charge her. But maybe it, it will take that for them to finally see what we're suffering with, not just us as black people, but the American people. Because no one is above the law, even those that feel the burn. <laughs> so I'm crime against humanity changed the federal constitution. You know, federally, what is going on? What does it say by law? Max, you're so smart. Thank you. That's all I have to say. Thank you, Corinne. And uh, I got one more caller I'm going to bring in, but I'll go ahead to you first, Sean, if you could keep it brief. Um, yeah, I was going to talk with um, off the show um, a little more extensively, but um, the latest hashtagging um, Stop Cop City. Um, I'm just wondering, it seems like that's another way where we have, you know, uh, someone with the National Amendment, you know, as a slavery abolitionist, and it seems like that's another way that the narrative is being co-opted with the team of Williamstown in um, Georgia. Yes, Cop City. Who'd have thunk it? All right, let me go ahead and bring in this other caller. Uh, I think I know who this is, uh, somebody very close to me. 6285, you are on abolition today. Hi, Matt. This is Jeanette Smith. Hello, um, Jeanette. I just, hi. I just had to call and say this great show. Um, so sorry that you said this sick, and I hope everybody's thinking of him and want everyone to also keep Gia Kenny and her husband in their thoughts and prayers as he just lost his father and he's incarcerated, and I'm sure they're having a rough time. Uh, but she's strong, and hopefully she'll keep him strong. And I love what Sean said, and 
Uh, I'm like him. I also got started with the death penalty. And I love what Corinne said, calling you professor. And it fits so well because I call you my mentor, but you teach a master class, you and Yusef. So, Professor Parsons, it fits. And I just wanted to say that. And the last thing I want to say is Max and Yusef and most of the abolitionists never ask for money. And they pull it out of their own pocket. So they never ask me to say this. This comes from me. And I'm always asking if you can give anything, if you can help in any kind of way, assisting if you don't have money or giving a little bit of money or a lot of money if you can. Um, The information is at the top of the page on uh, Abolition Today's Facebook page. And um, just want to say it's an honor to know you, Max, and an honor to be a part of the show in my small way. And uh, that's it. Thank you, Jeanette. Uh, Much appreciated. I want to give a big shout-out to our partners and sponsors tonight, uh, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, uh, who are the reason this show even exists. I am we, Ubuntu Prison Advocacy Network, SEMA Urge, Quakers Uplift, Uplifting Racial Justice. Shout out to Sharon Smith, Tennessee, uh, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, Prismatic Dreams, and the Abolish Slavery National Network. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube page at youtube.com slash abolition today. If you don't mind muting your microphone, please. Thank you. And uh, also follow us on Facebook at Abolition Today for all the news, information, and music that you hear on this program. Abolition Today is available on all major podcast platforms. And as of last week, it is also available on Amazon Amazon Music uh, Podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Abolition Today 1, the number one. Abolition Today, number one. And remember to join the movement at abolishslavery.us to become a part of the solution. Um, Our Bridging the Gap segment this week uh, is William Lloyd Garrison in an address to the slaves of the United States. And that will be followed by Junius J. Ward and his poem, Willie Lynch Records. We'll be back Sunday, April 9th, with another masterclass on slavery abolition. So until then, think about abolition today. Peace. Abolition. Abolition. Address to the Slaves of the United States. William Lloyd Garrison, June 2nd, 1843. Take courage. Be filled with hope and comfort. Your redemption draws nigh, for the Lord is mightily at work in your behalf. Is it not frequently the darkest before daybreak? The word has gone forth that you shall be delivered from your chains, and it has not been spoken in vain. Although you have many enemies, yet you have also many friends, warm, faithful, sympathizing, devoted friends, who will never abandon your cause, who are pledged to do all in their power to break your chains, who are laboring to effect your emancipation without delay, in a peaceable manner, without the shedding of blood, who regard you as brethren and countrymen, and fear not the frowns or threats of your masters. They call themselves abolitionists. 
they have already suffered much in various parts of the country for rebuking those who keep you in slavery, for demanding your immediate liberation, for revealing to the people the horrors of your situation, for boldly opposing a corrupt public sentiment by which you are kept in the great southern prison house of bondage. Some of them have been beaten with stripes. Others have been stripped and covered with tar and feathers. Others have had their property taken from them, burnt in the streets. Others have had large rewards offered by your masters for their seizure. Others have been cast into jails and penitentiaries. Others have been mobbed and lynched with great violence. Others have lost their reputation and been ruined in their business. Others have lost their lives. All these and many other outrages of equally grievous kind, they have suffered for your sakes. And because they are your friends, they cannot go to the South to see and converse with you face to face. For so ferocious and bloody-minded are your taskmasters, they would be put to ignominious death as soon as discovered. Besides, it is not yet necessary that they should incur this peril, for it is solely by the aid of the people of the North that you are held in bondage, and therefore they find enough to do at home to make the people hear your friends and to break up all connection with the slave system. They have proved themselves to be truly courageous and sensible to danger, superior to adversity, strong in principle, invincible in argument, animated by the spirit of impartial benevolence, unwearied in devising ways and means for your deliverance, the best friends of the whole country, the noblest champions of the human race. Ten years ago, they were so few and feeble as only to excite universal contempt. Now they number in their ranks hundreds of thousands of people. Then they had scarcely a single anti-slavery society in operation. Now there are thousands. Then they had only one or two presses to plead your cause. Now they have multitudes. They are scattering all over the land their newspapers, books, pamphlets, tracts, and other publications to hold up to infamy the conduct of your oppressors and to awaken the sympathy in your behalf. They are continually holding anti-slavery meetings in all parts of the free states to tell people the story of your wrongs. Wonderful has been the change effected in public feeling, under God, through their instrumentality. Do not fear that they will grow weary in your service. They are confident of success in the end. They know the Lord Almighty is with them, that truth, justice, right are with them, that you are with them. They know, too, that your masters are cowardly and weak through conscious wrongdoing and already beginning to falter their course. Lift up your heads, O ye despairing slaves. Yet a little while and your chains shall snap asunder and you shall be tortured and plundered no more. Then, fathers and mothers, your children shall be yours to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Then husbands and wives, now torn from each other's arms, you shall be reunited in the flesh, and man shall no longer dare to put asunder those whom God has joined together. Then, brothers and sisters, you shall be sold to the remorseless slave speculator no more, but dwell together in unity. God hasten that joyful day is now the daily prayer of millions. The weapons with which the abolitionists seek to effect your deliverance are not bowie knives, pistols, swords, guns, or any other deadly implements. 
They consist of appeals, warnings, rebukes, arguments and facts, addressed to the understandings, consciences and hearts of the people. Many of your friends believe that not even those who are oppressed, whether their skins are white or black, can shed the blood of their oppressors in accordance with the will of God, while many others believe that it is right for the oppressed to rise and take their liberty by violence, if they can secure it in no other manner. But they, in common with all your friends, believe that every attempt at insurrection would be attended with disaster and defeat on your part, because you are not strong enough to contend with the military power of the nation. Consequently, their advice to you is to be patient, long-suffering, and submissive, yet a while longer, trusting that, by the blessing of the Most High, on their labors, you will yet be emancipated without shedding a drop of your master's blood or losing a drop of your own. The abolitionists of the North are the only true and unyielding friends on whom you can rely. They will never deceive nor betray you. They have made your cause their own, and they mean to be true to themselves and to you, whatever may be the consequence. They are continually increasing in number, in influence, in enterprise, and determination. And judging from the success which has already attended their measures, they anticipate that, in a comparatively short period, the entire North will receive you with open arms and give you shelter and protection as fast as you escape from the South. We who now address you are united with them in spirit and design. We glory in the name of abolitionists, for it signifies friendship for all who are pining in servitude. We advise you to seize every opportunity to escape from your masters, and fixing your eyes on the North Star, travel on until you reach a land of liberty. You are not the property of your masters. God never made one human being to be owned by another. Your right to be free at any moment is undeniable, and it is your duty, whenever you can, peaceably, to escape from the plantations on which you are confined and assert your manhood. If Willie Lynch were alive today, he wouldn't own slaves. He'd own a record label. Tell his A&Rs about the brand new future of business. Say the block is hot. Let them push on this hot city block. Let them preen on this hot auction block. Let them use their best ad-libs on a hot track with a block, block, hot. Where he used to talk about leaving the woman distraught by destroying the male image. Now he just composed brand new songs encoded with instructions like call another man a vagina, talk about beating him up, female genitalia, beat it up. See how thin the line between divinity and exorcism. Willie sees the broken 16-year-old boy as a curse. All that matters to him is the bottom line and the blessing. Bottom line, two million inmates in a $37 billion prison economy. Blessing, private corporations can pay inmates just 23 cents a day. Curse, Bobby Schmurda just caught a body about a week ago. Epic Records gave him up after a week or so. Self-fulfilling prophecy, ratchet, thug, trap queen, chicken head hoe, slime, gangster, killer. Nick, language is a peculiar institution. Leads directly to the heart of a people. Translation, they call it a trap, but still make songs to brag about being in it instead of trying to get out. Translation, the New South is now Nike, Nabisco, Aramark, Beep. Did you know during the BP oil spill, they actually employed inmates to help clean up the spill instead of out-of-work fishermen who could have used the money? See, this new Willie would tell y'all it ain't about what's right. It's about owning the rights. Translation, the 13th Amendment states that slavery is not legal. 
except as punishment for a crime, which means slavery is legal. It just goes by a different name now. So today, Willie also owns a prison, also owns a school, has figured out a way to pipeline between the two. Translation, there are more blacks under correctional control today than there were enslaved in 1850. Translation, black code laws were used to round up freed slaves and put them right back into forced labor. You called it a chain gang, called it holding up America's economy during transition. Translation, is it a coincidence that this country started making money off prisons right after slavery ended? Is that when America was great? Uh, I'm sorry, um, trap translation speaking as hot boy. Take away they bars, take away they truth, take away they God. Now they God is you. Record company translation speaking as God. <laughs> when you pray about a dream deferred, who you talking to? You just lank stun, raising sons in the darkest cues. That ain't no song you sing, ain't no suggestion. That's marketing 101. Your target is your weapon. So welcome to Willie Lynch Records, where you will either buy the product or be the product. Abolition. 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 Hi, my name is Jeanette Smith. I am a slavery abolitionist. Some of you may know me. I'm doing this recording because I would like to ask if any of you can help with some financial assistance. Max and Yusuf do not like to ask for money, so I would like to ask on their behalf because they and other abolitionists pull money out of their own pockets, and this is so important. So if you can help, you can find the information at the top of the Facebook page for Abolition Today. Thank you. If we'd known you all were going to be this much trouble, we would have picked our own fucking cotton. <laughs>